Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. crazy about. It's just music. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to review new albums from two of rock's biggest rule breakers, Radiohead and Neil Young. Then it's my turn to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. not aware those are the dulcet tones of hannah montana (laughs) otherwise known at least to her dad billy ray cyrus of achy breaky heart as miley cyrus she made her name on a tv show that some five million tweens watch every week courtesy of the disney channel in which she has a secret double life she's a, a high school student and she's a pop star and now she is taking her act on the road and it is a phenomenon that's having some serious news consequences, this tour that's coming up this fall and into the winter. According to the national promoter who's doing the whole tour, it's the Anschutz Entertainment Group. One of the vice presidents was just quoted last week in the Sun-Times. We knew it was hot, but we had no idea how crazy it's like the Beatles. (laughs) And indeed, it is. Wow. Because hell hath no fury like a tween denied his or her sugar pop fix. Parents across the country are going apoplectic because they haven't been able to get tickets. In every market where the tour is setting down at some 54 dates across the country, they sold out instantly the tickets. And they were really pretty reasonably priced. Much of the arenas are going for $26, right? Within minutes of Ticketmaster selling out tickets to the arena concerts, they started showing up on the secondary market sites. That's the fancy name for them. The nasty name is Ticket Brokers, Ticket Scalpers, mm-hmm. okay? How is it that, that you were there online an hour before tickets came on sale or you, you logged on the minute they came on sale and you're shut out, but then within five minutes, StubHub or one of the other sites like Craigslist has these tickets that sold for $26, suddenly going for 200 300 400 and in some obscene cases, top-rate tickets in the, in the third or fourth row on the floor are going for as much as $1,500, at least in the Chicago market. 
that's absurd. This has prompted outrage across the country in several states and indeed throughout the entire live music industry. The attorneys general in Missouri, Arkansas, and Pennsylvania are actually investigating whether there were criminal shenanigans here in how these ticket scalpers got those tickets because it just doesn't seem to be a, a level playing field. You know, how, how can a fan be denied but this other person who's going to resell them at top dollar? Let's remember, yeah, this is America. There's an argument that says, look, market price for the ticket should be whatever the market is willing to pay. However, <laughs> if you got your tickets through nefarious means and an actual fan was shut out and you're reselling them, the arena's not getting the money. The promoter's not getting the money. Most of all, the artist isn't getting the money. Right. You bought something for, for uh, $26 and you're selling it for hundreds of dollars. You're pocketing a profit that you had nothing to do with. How do these tickets wind up in these hands? Well, Ticketmaster says it's not us. They have filed suit in Los Angeles against the manufacturers, Pittsburgh-based software manufacturers of a technology that is basically a computer program that allows these ticket scalpers to bombard the Ticketmaster sites with millions of requests mm-hmm. uh, in the span of minutes right. for tickets. So you're one person at the computer. you got one shot at getting a ticket. You've got this software because you're a ticket scalper. You, you've got hundreds and thousands if not millions of shots, of getting those tickets. Yeah, it's amazing, Jim. It's what, piracy. What's surprising to me is it's taken this long for people to be outraged, for, for attorneys general around the country to take notice of this, because this has been going on for years. This year alone, we've seen arcade fire tickets, Bruce Springsteen tickets, police tickets going on sale from these ticket brokers before the yeah. actual sales event. They are so sure of getting prime seats to these shows and then putting them up on sale for thousands of dollars. I mean, literally 3000 bucks for a police ticket in Chicago last summer from a ticket broker who had the tickets, assumed they were going to get the tickets, were right, they did get the tickets, and then were able to put them on sale before the actual ticket sale to the public. That's outrageous. To my mind, when Ticketmaster is charging fees of, say, 8 9 $10 per $25 ticket, you would assume it's a fail-safe system that would not allow this sort of abuse. But apparently, the Ticketmaster system is broken and has been for years. Yeah. And what's surprising to me, it's taken so long for well, people to realize there's that. There's clearly a need for governmental action because many states years ago passed laws restricting the amount over the face price that secondary sellers scalpers could charge for tickets. The internet has obviously made that obsolete. The government has to step in, I think, and say what's fair and what's not in this situation. used to be that the ticket scalpers would hire homeless people or or groups of kids to stand in line to get to the front of the line. Now they have computer robots to do it. They need to be shut down. Yes, the material girl is at it again. That, of course, is Madonna, and she is uh, once again going to break the mold in the record industry, this time to the tune of a supposedly $120 million 10-year contract with the nation's biggest concert promoter, Live Nation. What's new here, Jim, is that Live Nation is getting into the record business, or wants to anyway, if this contract is consummated. It wants to get into every business affair in Madonna's musical world, not just promote her shows, but release her records, get a piece of her merchandise, and do all her licensing. In other words, so if Madonna does a TV commercial or wants to license a song to a movie, Live Nation would get a piece of that action. So the nation's biggest concert promoter now wants to become a record company as well. We've seen these kind of all-encompassing 360-degree contracts, as they're called, with artists through record labels in the past. Bands like Korn and Robbie Williams have done this with their record labels to get a piece of everything that they do, touring, merchandise, licensing. But for the first time, a concert promoter is now getting into the record business and going to war, really, with the uh, the big labels now in competing for artists and uh, getting them under contract. Well, so, they figure, you know, that with record companies being threatened with their future, you know, why does art, does an artist even need a record company now if he can release uh, his own music on the net? The one thing that they still need a company for is to tour. And why don't we get a piece of every aspect of the business that we can out of this artist? It's a little scary because if the concert industry is all controlled by this one giant company and it's increasingly moving in that direction and the only way you can play their venues is to like become part of their stable of artists uh, you know it's a little a little weird 
Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. I think li- what Live Nation is setting itself up to be is is a completely independent entity apart from the record industry. Its contract with Ticketmaster is up at the end of 2008. There's a lot of talk going around that it wants to break its contract with Ticketmaster at that point and create its own ticketing agency. So it's not going to need the record labels. It's not going to need uh, Ticketmaster. You know, Ticketmaster anymore. It's going to be an entity unto itself to compete with something like Steve Jobs' iTunes and, and the Apple entity, which itself is becoming a record company in its in its own way. So it, it'll be interesting to see how this works out. $120 million for Madonna. A lot of people say they, they're overpaying. You know, with three albums on, on the docket, uh, she's never going to make that back. But what they're doing here is a, is a loss leader kind of move. Mm-hmm. They're establishing credibility. They're, they're getting one of the biggest names, if not the biggest names in pop entertainment to create this new brand for itself and hopefully bring other artists in afterwards. So that's, that's really the key here. That, of course, is uh, Universal Recording Artists U2. A couple of years ago, you could not escape that tune. It was associated with an iPod ad that U2 gave that song to, Vertigo. Now, Universal Records, U2's record company, is going to war against iTunes, or at least that's the way it's shaping up. Very interesting to see how the major labels are reacting to Steve Jobs and his increasing control over the pricing and distribution of music and the music business. The most powerful record company in the world right now is Universal Records, and the chairman of that company, Doug Morris, has said that he wants to launch an industry-owned subscription service that would counter Apple's iTunes store. In other words, he would create a business with the other major labels that would get into bed with Microsoft's Zune Media Player, Sony's PlayStation, and various cell phone companies and create a total music subscription service to consumers. The idea behind this business model would be that there would be a $5 subscription fee to access all the music you could possibly want in the course of an average month. The fee would be picked up by the cell phone companies and the manufacturers of these MP3 media players. So in other words, the consumers would be basically getting the music for free. They would get all the music they want, and in turn, the cell phone carriers and the media players would be getting the consumer's business through the sales of this hardware and the cell phones. It's an interesting business model, Jim, and it's basically saying to iTunes, you can't dominate the record business. You can't dictate price anymore. We're going to take our music away from you yeah. and sell it ourselves and keep more of the profit. It's too little too late. I mean, this is a lot like the model that Rick Rubin was talking about in that New York Times article we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But what really is happening here is that Morris, who was once the closest of allies with Steve Jobs yeah. of Apple, is realizing that he made a sucker's deal. <laughs> uh, you know, Apple is taking 29 cents or so of the 99 cents per download, right? Mm-hmm. And Morris really realizes he gave away too much. In fact, he had this great quote that was in a uh, Business Week story. Uh, I quote, we got rolled like a bunch of puppies. <laughs> right? Morris is this tough New York guy, yeah. likes to play like the godfather of the music right. industry. I, I have no idea what that means. We got rolled like a bunch of puppies. But but he's basically saying we gave away the fort because the old school record industry guys were too slow to recognize that the world was changing under them. It's amazing, Jim, because if he takes away uh, his catalog from iTunes. Those are some heavy hitters, not just U2, but Jay-Z, Eminem. I mean, some of the biggest artists in the world would go uh, away from iTunes and into this total music venture that Doug Morris is launching. So uh, we're creating another war here, except it's on the digital front.
break, that is the track 15 Steps, which is the opening song on the seventh album by Radiohead in Rainbows. Talking about the digital war, well, I've been trying to come up with the analogy for this ever since. The way Radiohead released this record, is it the Boston Tea Party? The start (laughs) of a a rebellious act that's going to be the start of a very long and bloody war that'll drag on? Or is it the storming of the Bastille? And do we hear record execs (laughs) like Doug Morris uh, getting hauled out to the guillotine, right? Is is it it almost all over? (laughs) Either way you cut it, in all seriousness, Radiohead's decision to release this album online well in advance of when CDs will show up in the stores next year, separate from the $80 box set, which you can also buy online at their website, to say this is a pay-what-you-think-it's-worth digital release. You can get it for free, or you can give us some money and show us that you believe in us and in this new mode of releasing music. This is turning the industry upside down and inside out. Right now, we're about a week and a half out from when Radiohead made it available online. The number today, and this is only going to grow by the time you hear this show, is 1.2 million downloads. About one-third of the people who did that download haven't paid a cent. The two-thirds of the people, some 700,000 people who took that music, chose to pay something for it and say, much like the model of public radio... I get something of value here Mm -hmm. from Radiohead. I'm going to invest my money and say thank you. Have been paying an average of about 10 American dollars. Do the math. About 700,000 people download the music for $10. Radiohead's made $7 million. Wow. In in less than two weeks on on a much-anticipated album that's going to be officially in stores next year, and maybe people will want to buy the CD because there are some questions, and there is a bit of a backlash about the sound quality. Why don't you explain that? What Radiohead has done, Jim, is release this music at slightly below CD quality on its website. CD quality is about 192 kilobytes per second. They released it at a 160 kilobytes per second rate. That's slightly above the iTunes rate, so it's in between. Yeah. Uh, but it's not you know, pristine. It's not the uh, optimum level. And because a, to, to have done it at the optimum level it would have cost Radiohead much more money and the downloads would have taken longer. I think what they're doing here, Jim, is what the initial feelings were about services like Napster. People were going to be able to sample the music for free and decide whether or not they wanted to purchase it. And that's essentially what Radiohead's doing, saying, listen to our music, get a feel for it. When the CD comes out next year, maybe you'll want to buy that. I think that's what the aim hmm. here is. It's not about uh, revolutionizing the business. Johnny Greenwood said that a few days ago. He said it's not about restarting the music industry as we know it. It's about letting the fans listen to the music on our terms and letting everybody listen to it at the same time rather than have the music trickle out over three or four months, as was the case with their previous three albums. Well, I I disagree with the guitarist and Radiohead, Johnny Greenwood, (laughs) because I've been listening to this album in depth, and we're going to do our review of it in the next segment. 160 kilobytes per second is just fine for me. Millions of people are buying songs at the 128 kilobits uh, or or thereabouts rate that uh, iTunes offers them. And they're happy to own it in that form at that level. I've heard no drop in quality. I mean, you know, I don't own a $7,000 sound system, and not many people do. I agree. Yeah, the sound right. has been just fine. I think it's going to be interesting when the second part of the story happens next year. Does anyone buy the CD? We right. have a new generation of music consumers that doesn't necessarily want physical media. They don't want to carry stuff. I've moved seven times in 12 years. I don't want to carry my 10,000 CDs around anymore. I'd be happy to just have everything in a hard drive, as long as I had a backup. Well, it goes to the larger point here, Jim. A lot of people are thinking radio has this radical thing. People who have not heard Radiohead before are wondering, what is this weird art rock band from England releasing this music digitally? I don't understand any of it. This is an old-fashioned rock band that still believes in physical product, that still believes in the album, that believes in people listening to 10 songs ordered in a particular way, sequentially, and meant to be listened in that order. I think one of the reasons they did this is because they wanted people to listen to those 10 songs in this particular order mm-hmm. with, their, with their ability to control the packaging and the release of this record. They are an old-fashioned, progressive rock band well, in the 70s. They would have fit in right in with that uh, model. Think of it as Dark Side of the Moon. You yeah. know, you bought Dark Side of the Moon perhaps when it came right out by Pink Floyd, and, and then you were really excited to get the Japanese ultra-high-fidelity vintage vinyl virgin vinyl uh, pressing, you know what I mean? People have bought a record like that a hundred times in, in, yep. in every time there's a higher fidelity. I think the hi-fi geeks are going to buy physical media for this next year, Sure, but I think the majority of people interested in Radiohead 
which it must be said is a band that has sold 20 million albums in its career. Mm -hmm. Nobody has done this move, releasing an album digitally this way first on their level. They are the first multi-platinum band to do this. That's why this is such an intense question. At the end of the day, though, all of that is secondary as far as I'm concerned to the quality of the music. take a break on sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're going to come back and tell you exactly what Radiohead's seventh album, In Rainbows, sounds like. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a track called Nude from the seventh studio album from Radiohead, In Rainbows, which was digitally released by the band from its own website, Radiohead.com. We've been talking about this story for weeks on Sound Opinions. Now the music is finally here. What's this album actually sound like? Let's bring Radiohead up to date. Their last studio album came out in 2004, Hail to the Thief. It ended their contractual obligation to a major label, Capital EMI, and basically made Radiohead free agents. In that time, they've been working on new music, took it out on the road last summer. Many of the songs that uh, you hear on In Rainbows were played live during its North American tour in 2006, including that song, Nude. Let's hear some more music from the record, and then we're going to discuss... The content of In Rainbows. How does this music hold up? Is it worth your money? Is it worth a digital download? Let's listen to Body Snatchers from In Rainbows on Sound Opinions, and then we'll be back with a review. I do not understand what it is. I don't know before check
That is a song called Body Snatchers from In Rainbows by Radiohead. Uh, Greg, it's time to get to the nitty-gritty of this music. This is, without a doubt, one of the most ambitious bands of the alternative rock generation. Even though, you know, early on, I think if you go back now and listen to Pablo Honey from 93 or the Benz from 95, those records sound very much in step with the grunge times, if you will. It was really with OK Computer in 97 that they took this step into the future. An album where the sounds and the theme, I think, were very much of a piece. Here was a record about the encroaching alienation of the digital age, at the same time talking about the promise of what this new world of online communications was going to give people. It was a brilliant idea, and and I know that the burbles and bleeps of the digital recording combined with the kind of basic psychedelic stadium rock that Radiohead was capable of were meant to be, you know, a, a weird contrast. And that was fine. What always got me was Tom York's singing. I think his very slippery falsetto that snakes in and out of the music is an acquired taste. That can be said of many of the greatest vocalists in rock history. We're going to talk to Robert Wyatt in a couple of weeks, not a conventional voice by any means, a hero of Tom York's. But it took a while for me to really learn to stop worrying and love the Radiohead. And I said this last year when we reviewed The Eraser, Tom York's first solo album. I think he's changed the way he sings. He's relaxed a lot. He's got a new approach. It's a very much a different voice. And I think part of the success of In Rainbows is that he's singing better than he ever has and the band is more accessible than it's ever been bringing in these very organic symphonic orchestrations at times this is an easier radiohead album to listen to than anything since okay computer and before i agree i think york's singing is uh, wonderful on this record and i think you hit the keyword he's more relaxed some people have taken that to mean that Radiohead is somehow less committed to this material than some of its earlier stuff. But there's not that pa- where's the passion? They're not pushing themselves as hard. I think they're getting better as they're relaxing and realizing that they don't have to strain to reach these heights, and they're making really beautiful music. People are wondering, okay, where did the rock go? Body Snatchers is sort of a red herring. It's it's the most rocking tune yeah. on this record. Everything else is fairly low key. Uh, but I think the album builds beautifully. It hangs together beautifully. We talked earlier about the fact that this is an old-fashioned rock and roll band. They still believe in the album. They still believe in listening to, to songs in sequence, in an order. This is an album about, about love, about the toxic consequences of falling in love, about the fact that the human beings need to be loved. They keep going to that well over and over again, even though their hearts get broken relationships end badly, but we keep going back. The record sort of builds to a couple of key points. Near the end of the record, there are a couple of songs, Reckoner and then House of Cards. I don't think he has ever sounded as warm and open as he does on the song House of Cards. I don't want to be your friend I just want to be your lover Key line, I don't want to be your friend, I just want to be your lover. I mean, Radiohead, that is about as universal and open as Tom York has ever been. They they talk about these oblique lyrics, and what is he singing about? Well, it's very clear what he's singing about on this record. It it has been fairly obtuse at times in Radiohead. Sometimes you didn't know what he was singing about. I agree that song is uh, very universal. But also, Greg, there's a greater love, a love of humanity. This is a a political band in a very old-fashioned, just as they're old-fashioned about uh, championing the album, they're old-fashioned about their politics. They believe in humanism. They believe we shouldn't be killing each other. (laughs) For this reason, sometimes they swoop in and focus on very specific political issues like anti-globalization. To me, you know, you said it all builds to a climax about the power of love. I think it also builds to a climax about the dangers of technology. Mm -hmm. Here's a band that is cutting edge in what it's doing in the studio with producer Nigel Godrich, and yet they're also still very concerned about what that technology that helps them is doing and hurting the rest of the world. I don't think it's coincidence, given that whole backstory we talked about before, that this album ends with a song called Videotape. Let us not forget, Mm -hmm. it was not that long ago when VHS tape was considered the future. (laughs) And lots of people were saying, oh my God, this is going to kill the movie industry and all this stuff. Now, the video cassette's an anachronism. You know, York sings, no matter what happens now, I won't be afraid. It's kind of like he's, he's writing either a suicide note or he's on his deathbed. You don't know. And the second part of that is, because I know today has been the most perfect day I've ever seen.
I think he's talking about standing at the cusp of the new millennium. Anything is possible right now, and what do we do with it? Absolutely. Uh, it is a beautiful song. I had the most trouble with that song because it had this kind of weird percussion on it, and I was going, what is that? But in the same way, that sonic device works perfectly in tandem with the sort of disorienting feeling of the song and the entire album. The fact that you are my center when I spin away. You're right. He's talking about being at the gates of heaven. He's either dead or dying, and he's thinking about what's going to matter. All this technology aside, it comes down to this basic idea that there was a person on the planet that you once loved, and that was the most important thing in your life, and those were his last thoughts on Earth. It's a beautiful sentiment. It's a 10-song, 42-minute record. It's it's very modest in a lot of ways. By yeah. Radiohead standards, yeah. it's a very modest record. They've dialed back some of the glitchy electronics. People say, well, where are the guitars? There are guitars all over this record. Johnny Greenwood and Ed O'Brien are playing some beautiful little guitar lines, but they're sort of interlaced with these kind of very beautiful settings. The strings are gorgeous. Gorgeous. And I think there's a soul music element that you can hear in this song. I mean, Tom York has come as close as he's ever been to singing like a soul singer. And and, and the arrangements also remind me of some classic soul sides that I've listened to from the 60s and 70s. So in a lot of ways, Radiohead is returning to the most human and the most direct form of communication they possibly can. As you said, in this age of this incredible technology, when they've made this album available via digital download, Mm -hmm. they've also made their most human and most direct record. Buy it, burn it, trash it is the scale we use. You don't necessarily have to buy this. You can download it for free. Yeah. Although I think the idea of paying about 10 bucks for 10 great songs, that's about a, as good a deal as you're going to get anywhere in the 21st century. Buy this record. Absolutely, Jim. It's beyond the distribution system. People get sort of thrown off. It's, oh, it's got to be a weird, freaky, futuristic thing. This is not at all in that bag. 20 years from now, no matter how these albums are distributed, no matter how these records are heard, this record is going to sound good. So buy it, download it, whatever way you can get it. It it is definitely worth having as part of your life. Shining light You always show me You always guide me I don't know I'm waiting to feel around me again. That is a song called Shining Light by Neil Young from his new album Chrome Dreams 2. Why is it Chrome Dreams 2? Well, Greg, Chrome Dreams 1 was a 1977 (laughs) album that Neil scrapped at the last minute. Various versions of it have come out on bootlegs under that name ever since. He decided not to release it at the time, even though it included the first versions of some of his greatest songs. Powderfinger, uh, among them, Pocahontas was another. Neil has always been absolutely inscrutable in terms of trying to figure out, from an outside fan's perspective, why he changes his musical style or chooses to release any particular song at any given time. This record, I think, you have to know in some part to appreciate that the soon-to-be 62-year-old singer and songwriter suffered a near-fatal brain aneurysm in the spring of 2005, nearly claimed his life. That had a big impact on him. Most notably, you know, you can see the aftermath of that in that wonderful Jonathan Demme concert film, Heart of Gold, that chronicled it. His last album since that accident or or that illness was Living With War, which was kind of an exception to, to the mode he's been in because he was watching the news, he got very angry about everything happening in Iraq and Afghanistan and put out this explosion of righteous political anger. But for the most part, I think Neil is starting to realize he may be getting down toward the end of his particular road. And he's taking stock of everywhere he's been in his life and everything he's done. So we get this odds and sods collection. Some of these songs are are quite old. Some of them are new. All of them are newly recorded with an interesting band that features one member from each of the most famous bands he's led in the past. You have Ralph Molina, who of course was in Crazy Horse. You have Ben Keith, his longtime friend who was in the Stray Gators, and Rick Rosas, who was in the Blue Notes. So Neil's put together kind of a band that captures every era. Well, he's had so many eras that it's hard to capture everything. But but the key bands he's ever led in the last 30 or 40 years. Let's get into the music after we hear this song, Ordinary People. This is one of the older songs 
dates back about 15 years or so to the uh, Blue Notes period. Wasn't right then. He says the time is now for ordinary people. Here it is on Sound Opinions. Ordinary People from Neil Young's new album, Chrome Dreams 2. That's just a snippet. One verse of nine verses and 18 minutes. 18 minutes. We maybe gave you one-ninth of it. Yeah. Young is all over the map on this record. Jim, as you indicated, it's sort of a patchwork of, of different eras in his life brought together with a patchwork of musicians from different eras in his life. And it reminds me of some of those late 70s records in the mold of American Stars and Bars and Rust Never Sleeps, mm-hmm. which were sort of hodgepodge records. It turned out to be great records, but he was piecing together different pieces of his past. Sometimes it, he's an acoustic folky. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he's a soul man. Sometimes he's he's a full-on grunge rocker. Absolutely, and he's got, he's got the mix here. He's got the country ballads like Boxcar and Beautiful Bluebird, and he's got the, the soul songs like Shining Light, which we just heard in The Believer. He's got the big guitar workout, Spirit Road, No Hidden Path, and then he's got a lullaby at the end with a children's choir called The Way. So he's all over the map here, but I think the unifying theme here is that this is Neil Young's version of a gospel record. Mm. Uh, it is not gospel music. It doesn't sound like a gospel record, but it, the themes are, are spiritual, and I think you know he's looking sort of beyond confronting his mortality, as you said. I think the brain aneurysm in 2005 really made him take stock. That's why he's looking back and piecing together some of these songs that he felt were worth preserving from his past and bringing them together under this kind of more spiritual theme. But even in a song like Ordinary People, which is you know almost 20 years old now, I think he's talking about ordinary people trying to make the best of their lives, doing the best they can under trying circumstances, and he now here as an older man taking stock of his life and seeing where it's going, even in the one sort of red herring on this record, which is a song called Dirty Old Man. I'm, I'm glad you're getting to that, because I was just going to tell you that it wasn't, it isn't all prayer. There's some Neil Young being a complete goofball, But even, even that guy, he, he's talking not about a rarefied figure here. He's talking about an ordinary guy, much like a, he could have been a figure in the Ordinary People song, except just brought forward 20 years. Well, allow me to quote, I like to get hammered on Friday night, sometimes yeah. I can't wait, so Monday's all right. <laughs> You know, and you contrast this. I would invite listeners to contrast this. All those listeners who gave me hate yeah. mail about Bruce Springsteen with Girls in Their Summer Clothes from Springsteen's new album. <laughs> You're, I don't even know how you can compare those two songs. Be my guest that you are, about, but I, I don't see the connection at all. both about 60-year-old guys <laughs> lusting after 20-year-old girls. It, it is the one humorous element. I'll agree with you on that point. But overall, I think the, the theme is pretty, you know, pretty serious. I compare this record to some of the Johnny Cash records that he was making mm. with Rick Rubin, and I don't normally associate Neil Young with these kind of sentiments or this oh, kind of music. No, no. Now, we are both students and fans of Neil Young. He wrote Old Man. Old Man, take a look at me now. I'm a lot like you. He was oh, 20-something. He's been he's been thinking about being old a, and dying his Jim, whole life. But, Jim, where are these spiritual themes that he's talking about in this record, in his catalog? I can't really think of parallels to his past where, where he's sort of talked about God in this way uh, I don't, you're, on you're, his songs. You're making my brain hurt. 
I'm getting the, the impression that we both love this record. Yeah. All right? All right, we, but we seem to both love it for completely different reasons. Yeah. To me, Neil is dealing with these heavy questions. He has throughout his entire recorded career. And at the end of the day, all the heavy questions get laid on the side as he picks up that guitar and he rides that groove. It is nothing less than the life force encapsulated in the way he plays that instrument. Well, it, I agree with you, but I, I can't see how you can possibly miss the, the, the spiritual core of this record. Well, the fact that we can... We can see so so many different sides of his music is a testament to how important he still is. Is there any other baby boom rock icon that's still putting out such consistently great music, such buy it quality music uh, for sure? I mean, Neil's at the top of his game still at sixty two. The, the, the thing about Neil Young is he honors what he feels in the moment. It's not you know he doesn't overthink anything. It's like what do I feel right now? And yeah. he's going to put it on the record. And you get a feeling like you're getting a slice of Neil Young of of a real person in, in real time. With these records so uh obviously chrome dreams 2 is a buy it record double buy it on neil young when we come back on sound opinions from chicago public radio and american public media we're going to talk about another hero who first came to us in the 60s john fogarty and i will have a desert island jukebox pick Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. What you're hearing is a little bit of uh, the new John Fogarty record called Revival, and that is a song called Credence Song. In case you missed it, John Fogarty was in this little American rock and roll band in the late 60s <laughs> called Credence Clearwater Revival. I could play you, or I could name you, 50 Credence songs that I think are, are just stone classics. I think he wrote that many great songs. The man was a machine back then. He was writing great songs. He was in a great band. But the whole Creedence Clearwater Revival era ended very, very badly. He basically gave away the rights to all his songs. It took him about 20 years to get over the fact that he did that, had a very bitter, bitter relationship with that record label and the owner of that label, Fantasy Records. But only in recent years, Fogarty started to play Creedence songs in concert. Fantasy Records has changed hands. He is now back on Fantasy Records. He is reconciled with his past, with the Creedence catalog. And there's your proof, Creedence song. Fogarty has uh, released a number of solo records over the last 30 years. This is the one where he comes closest to uh, reviving the sound that made him famous back in the 60s and 70s. We're going to play a song from the new record and see whether or not he lives up to that uh, promise. But here's a song that I think illustrates where he's at now, clearly referencing one of his great Creedence songs, The Angry, Fortunate Son, which was written in the 60s. Uh, this is kind of an update of that song, I Can't Take It No More, where he's looking on, out on the political landscape in this country and very frankly stating his, uh, his views on that and with some pretty hard-hitting rock and roll. I Can't Take It No More from John Fogarty on Sound Opinions. I can't take it no more. You keep on beating that old dead horse. You know you lied about how we went 
John Fogarty, he can't take it no more from his new solo album, Revival. Uh, no coincidence that title, Greg, as you indicated. He's looking back to his past. But I don't know what all you rock critics who are celebrating this record are hearing in it because I don't, I don't hear the connection to the past that I want to hear. To me, Creedence Clearwater Revival was at its best. When, when they were riding a groove, when they were hypnotizing you, when they were celebrating the power of drone. They had this ability to ride this groove with a little bit of, of swamp, bayou, mystery, and spice, and just dark. I mean, to me, Creedence Clearwater at its best is purple. Dark purple that like envelops you, <laughs> and it's mysterious. And it's a little witch doctory, you know yeah, what I'm right. saying? And here, it's all jangly. It's all in your face. That song obviously has this kind of like amped up 50s kind of groove happening. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, to me, the one spark of life on here. But musically, it's all way too light and jangly and none of that dark mystery that made Credence powerful, in my opinion. The other thing that's really bad here, I think, is I don't hear. Fortunate Son is an incredibly sophisticated take on the generation of underprivileged people, undereducated, underprivileged Americans being sent to be cannon fodder in Vietnam while the rich kids go on to uh, to lead the country, like the president of the United States at the moment, you know, who didn't have to serve in the war, right? Or the vice president either. I don't hear that kind of measured critique here. I hear a lot of romantic hoo-ha about gunslingers and rambling men and gambling men, <laughs> and it's all just absolute hokum. I, I'm going to get more aggravation for this, but, but to me, it's an idealized America he's singing about, much like Bruce Springsteen's. Well, you know, he knows something's wrong and he wishes we could get back to a better time, but on closer examination, that better time wasn't as good as he's remembering it. You know, looking out across this town kind of makes me wonder how all the things that made us great got left so far behind. Well, you know, the 60s suck too, John. You were there and you were one of the most poignant commentators on it, and now you're nostalgic to go back to it, and you're really letting me down despite the many good reviews this album is getting. Well, I think the reviews are, are generally good for this record because he is closer than he has been in a long time to that Creedence sound, which is, you know, focused more on on a heavier guitar sound. Personally, I'm, I'm, I'm mixed on this record. I, I think it takes him a little while, uh, too long to get warmed up. The first half of the record is kind of slow and sleepy and country-oriented, a little too twangy, a little too soft, and it made me think of that record he put out in 2004, Deja Vu All Over Again, yeah. where I thought he'd gone irretrievably soft. He was starting to write all these songs about his domestic life and how, how oh, blissful yeah, it was. Yeah, that was a bad record. And it was just, a, just, okay, come on, John, you know, wake up. Either you stop making music or, or give us some of that credence rage again. You're right. The hypnotic credence is not on this record. But the guitars come back in the second half of the record, and from, from that standpoint, it's kind of promising. I love to hear what he's doing on songs like Long Dark Night, where I feel like he's returning to some of that guitar playing that made him so great. The tour that followed that not-so-good Deja Vu all over again record was an eye-opener for me because he was playing amazingly all night long for these two-and-a-half-hour sets, and I thought, Fogarty needs to make an album like this. Mm. I think he's getting back in the groove. He's not all the way there. Who knows if he'll ever be. But I think this is the most credible Fogarty solo record in quite a long time. I'm going to give it a burn it because I think Fogarty fans are going to like at least half this record. There's nothing of the quality of Fortunate Son on here. Let's no, be absolutely no. clear about it. I can't go that far. It really was a letdown to me. I don't think it's unfair to to hold an artist up to his own best work. Yeah. You know, we do it with the Rolling Stones. Right. We're doing it with Neil Young. Fogarty's a trash it, I'm sorry to say. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Just to cast away, island lost the sea. Now I'm stranded on my own. Stranded far from home. Come on. Do you remember? We were shipwrecked together. Stranded out so far from home. Stranded, yeah, mama. As often as we can on Sound Opinions, we like to pop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox and pick out a record that we cannot live without. And this week, it's Jim's turn. Well, Greg, thank you. Uh, the DIJ is sometimes an indulgence, and I figured we've talked about so much music in this show, I could go anywhere I want, and I want to indulge myself with some more Neil Young! <laughs> because, man, this album really just struck me as a wonderful thing. Every time I expect that Neil can't measure up to the past, he does. 
Here is a great example of his past that's appropriate to our discussion of Chrome Dreams. Because as I said, the first version of Powderfinger appeared on Chrome Dreams, and it was very different than the one that came out in 1979 on Rust Never Sleeps, when Neil did the first half of the album as acoustic, the second half as raging electric. And this song is by far the standout on a great album, and one of the standouts of his career. Interesting for a couple of things. Number one, his guitars have rarely been as powerful as they are here. The guitar is so emotional, it tells 90% of the story in this song. The other 10% of the story is fascinating because there are many, many web pages devoted to lyrically analyzing what the heck Neil Young is talking about in Powderfinger. Popular reading is that it's uh, set during the Civil War, and one side or the other, you don't know who's on which side, the north or the south is coming down the river on a boat, and a kid is left to defend the homestead, and he goes out there with one rifle against many, and he's killed. You know, he dies, and he wonders about what cause did he die for. Another reading is that the white boat coming down the river is actually a Coast Guard cutter, Hmm. and the family is trying to make ends meet. They're doing it illegally. Drug running, gambling, a still, who knows? There's another reading that it's a Vietnam song, and the boat is actually a swift boat of the kind that John Kerry piloted. Nobody knows. I mean, throughout his career, another great line that's always stood out for me uh, from another song is, what is the color when black is burned? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? I have no idea. (laughs) But what a wonderful image and so enigmatic. So you have this boat coming down the river and you have a kid who's about to do battle with it and he's thinking of the things his dad told him. His brother's out hunting in the mountain and he's alone and and he doesn't know what to do. And then it all builds through this last verse. Think of me as one you never figured would fade away so young with so much left undone. Remember me to my love. I know I'll miss her. What an emotional thing. Whatever giant odds this kid was fighting, the emotion of the Maverick American, it's a very American song Mm -hmm. from a Canadian genius standing up against all odds for whatever he believed in, right or wrong, and paying the consequences. That story is told as much in the incredible guitar solos between the verses as it is in the words. Rock and roll doesn't get any better than Powderfinger. Look out, mama, there's a white boat coming. Great choice, Jim. Powderfinger from Neil Young is your Desert Island Jukebox pick. Uh, God, you took one from me. I would have I picked that one uh, at some point. We That's can wrestle over it. Song. We can wrestle about why we both think it's great and think about it's great for different reasons. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Next week, we're going to have another one that we can agree on. Uh, Robert Wyatt, one of the great progressive rock musicians of all time, founder of Soft Machine, coming out with a wonderful new solo record called Comic Opera. We're going to have an extended conversation with him about his new record and his career, and that'll be next week on Sound Opinions. Greg, as always, Sound Opinions has been produced by the ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with assistance from Dave, the intern, Mahler, and, of course, our executive producer, our fearless leader, the man who shelters us from the powder and the finger, <laughs> is Tori Southside Melodia. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. I'm in the phone booth, it's a one across the hall. If you don't answer, I'll just bring it off the wall. I know he's there, but I just try to call. So leave me hanging on the telephone. So leave me hanging on the telephone. New messages. Hi, this is Colby from my home in Ventura, California. It's Wednesday, the 10th of October, the proverbial day of the musical shot heard around the world. I just got to be downloading In Rainbows for Radiohead's website. I paid for the record. I did the exchange online. It was incredibly liberating to purchase music from an artist, and I paid a, a retail price and knowing that all those funds were going to go to those guys that artist was uh was a good feeling a feeling that i haven't had in a really long time and this is something that i think other artists are certainly going to going to turn towards uh and record companies are certainly going to fear thanks a lot love the show I'm Greg. My name is Kurt. I'm a podcast listener from Chandler, Arizona. One thing that I don't hear talked about in the digital revolution that's kind of been talked about with the Radiohead album is the environmental impact of not pressing and distributing millions of pounds of plastic. You know, especially with the Radiohead, given their environmental record and so forth, that it's curious that that isn't even really discussed as a positive in all of this, even by the record companies. Anyway, really enjoy the show. Bye-bye. Hello, this is Mark from Chicago, Illinois. I wanted to comment on the new Radiohead album. The website was really poorly designed. It didn't tell you that what you were going to get. I also didn't mention that there was a CD coming out soon. And this download, which is at 160-bit rate, which is pretty lousy in 2007. That would have been good back in the year 2000. Even Amazon.com sends out their MP3s in 256-bit rate. So, you know, I got caught up in all the buzz, and I thought Radiohead was doing us a good thing, but I'm not so sure anymore. Hi, this is Elaine, a listener out of San Diego. I just got done listening to your podcast where you reviewed the latest Polly Jean Harvey I mean, because of you, I did buy her new one because um, I listened to a couple tracks. I'm like, eh, I'm not sure. But to say bring me my love or bring you my love was her masterpiece. I mean, it is awesome. Uh, come on, Billy. Teclo, working for the man. Absolutely. But to not hear rid of me, to not hear dry from PJ Harvey is like the biggest miss you'll have in your life. up the great work. I'm glad about the PJ Harvey. I'll be listening to it this week. And you know what? Your show rocks. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Rick from New York. Last week, one of your callers protested Jim's offhanded comment 
disparaging Tom Waits during the Steve Earle album review. He said that Tom Waits was, quote, one of the most foremost singer-songwriters of our time. Now, since I happen to agree with Jim on Tom Waits, and for that matter, Bruce Springsteen, Dave Matthews, TV on the radio, and other so-called critics' darlings, I have a suggestion for a theme show for you. Most overrated acts of all time. If nothing else, it'll be sure to egg on listener calls like this one. Enjoy the show. Keep up the good work. Thank you. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.